Acts chapter 18, and I want to read um, verses, verse 24, starting at verse 24 to the end of uh, that chapter. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Father, we are uh, before your word this morning. And uh, thank you for it. It's variety. It's um, accuracy. It's precision. It's help in our lives. And Father, I don't know why we happen to be in this text today, but we're here for a reason. You have gathered everyone that is here in this auditorium for a reason, to impart worship together, to impart fellowship together, and to impart hear your word spoken today. So I pray that you would take this word, and as you have already been working it in my heart and life this past week, that you will now work it in the hearts and lives of those who are gathered here. May some be encouraged. May some be challenged, may some be warmed, warned, and may others be, for the first time, brought into the kingdom of God because they understand what Apollos was doing. So we pray these things in the great and the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Just before, uh, I've got one more thing to mention. Uh, this Saturday, we have a funeral here at the church. Um, uh, Zenon Souter passed away uh, um, last Sunday. And so we have an opportunity to gather with his family and to uh, worship God together and to uh, commit Zenon um, to God. So if you have, uh, if you're available, it's here at the church at one o'clock, and uh, we'll, you're more than welcome to join with the family here. Many here, particularly when the summer comes along, have a little bit more time on your hands and pull out the books from your shelf or walk into the bookstore. And some of our summer reading is often biography. Biography is fascinating reading. It um, is a way to sort of escape and to look at the world through an eyes of another. Uh, over the last uh, probably year and a half, two years, I've, I've read a few biographies, not as many as I would like, but um, uh, Ernest Shackleton, uh, The Forgotten Expedition, and uh, it's an amazing book about that expedition into the, uh, into the Antarctic and um, the ordeals that he faced. Um, we happen to be in uh, Victoria a week ago Saturday, and uh, you can go to the IMAX down there, and they've got a 45-minute presentation on the journey of Shackleton. And it's compelling to see the stamina and uh, the fortitude and the confidence of an individual that um, takes on terrain and conditions like that. Um, recently, I've read George Bush's book um, on decisions, decision points, and it doesn't really matter whether you are a Republican or a Democrat. It's just a fascinating book on on uh, certain significant points in his eight-year presidency and the decisions that he was confronted and how he came to 
um, understand the complexity of the decisions and then why he made the decisions that he did. And you get just a wee insight into, there's Scottish in me, a wee insight, um, in, insight into his, um, sorry, I got French and British and uh, into his life. Um, and then probably about a, a summer ago, I, I reread George Mueller on prayer and was fascinated to read that book again and see how not only was he an extraordinary man of prayer, understood um, God, had an amazing friendship with God. He was a man who was committed to helping orphans in England, and he was a man who, we don't talk about this much, was, but was extraordinarily committed to missions work and supported dozens of missionaries um, completely around the world during his time. So there are great opportunities for us to learn about individuals. There was a time when I would read biography and, and I'd almost always come away feeling dejected because I would compare myself to these individuals and I think, well, look at my life. What have I accomplished? But I more and more am understanding that biographies are simply snippets into unique creatures that God has created, of which I am one. And believe it or not, I think every one of us here, if somebody wrote a story about our life, it would be interesting because there are highlights in our life. There are things that we have done, things that only we have accomplished that would be of interest to other people. So I read these books with a little bit of a different light now and, uh, uh, and, and try and learn and glean from them. When we come to the scriptures, we realize in scriptures that scripture is, uh, in one way, an autobiography. It's an autobiography about God. And so you can read the scriptures and you find out who God is. You find out what God has done. You find out what makes God tick. You find out what God wants of us. You, you know, we sang of him a little bit uh, today, you know, God of wonders beyond the galaxies. And so uh, you, you read through scriptures and you learn about who God is. But woven throughout scriptures are story after story, some longer, some shorter, of God's way with people and God's interaction with, with, with his creation and the ways that they responded to God and the way God worked through them or the way they rebelled against God. And some are, you can, you can go and you can read the life, life of Abraham or Joseph. You can read about Sarah. Uh, you can read about Abimelech. You can read about the kings of uh, of Israel. You can go to the New Testament. You can read about Dorcas. You can read about Eutychus. You can read about just various people. And it's fascinating to learn little snippets about their lives from the scripture. As we come to our text this morning, you might have, uh, you might have already picked up that it's about Apollos. Uh, it's a little glimpse into the life of Apollos. It's not a whole lot about him, but it's, it's a few little important snippets that Luke thinks are important for us to understand, and I think in part to show us that Jesus is still alive and active in the lives of individuals, raising them up, uniquely gifting them and equipping them for works that he has prepared for them. And we see that in the life of Apollos. And so what we have in Apollos, I think, is a little bit of a spiritual biography. It's really the emphasis on what God has been doing in his life, and it's really rather something remarkable. Uh, dotted out throughout this text is also little glimpses of people who impacted his life. And so we'll have co- occasion to just mention a couple of those incidences along the way. So as we turn to Apollos, then Luke begins by just telling us a, a little bit about his upbringing and his spiritual character. He, he says now he was a Jew named Apollos, and he was a native of Alexandria, that he had come to Ephesus, and he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. There's a world being spoken of in there. Uh, he tells us he was a Jew from Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt. Alexandria wasn't a terribly old city. It was established by Alexander the Great. And it was to be um, a sort of a, a frontier place in which 
uh, Greek culture and civilization could influence all of North Africa and into the Mediterranean area. It was established about 355 BC by Alexander, and uh, it was a strategic location. It was known as an intellectual center of the world. It was a place where great studies took place and uh, intellectuals gathered and they, they, they looked at all sorts of things. It boasted probably the largest library, the most comprehensive library in the ancient world. Gathered in that city also, and you could get a glimpse of how large that city must have been. There were over a million Jews, most people uh, suggest, living at this time. They had a, a, a considerable impact on that city and on the development of that city. As did the Jewish culture have an impact on the Jewish people that lived there. Some of you who are a bit more familiar with uh, biblical studies, um, you've heard the term the, the, the Septuagint. Uh, short, we call it the LXX. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And it's a, it's a quality translation. And it's one that scholars still rely on today to help us understand things in the Old Testament. That copy of the, or that translation was produced by the Jewish community in Alexandria about 200 years before the time of Christ. Uh, also out of Alexandria, some of you who might be students of philosophy would have heard of Philo. Philo was uh, a great Jewish uh, philosopher. He was a contemporary of Jesus Christ. Um, he was one that was uh, given to the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. Um, and there is very likely the chance that Apollos had some contact with him in one way or another as they were living in that particular city. So it was an incredible city with an incredible amount of influence with a sort of a worldwide culture, a center of logic and reasoning, of study and learning. And this was here that Alec, or, or that Apollos uh, grew up. We find as we move quickly from his birth to a little bit about his character that he was a learned and eloquent man. Uh, it's, a, it's a word that can be translated um, either of those ways. He was learned or he was eloquent. And I think it's important that maybe we combine both of those together when we think about him. He would be what we might call university trained. Maybe he even had postgraduate education um, as he was in that city there. He was a very, very bright man. He had learned um, many things uh, while he was there. But he also, though, was eloquent. He had the ability to speak well. Sometimes we have people that are very learned and you sit under them and, and they put you to sleep every time they talk. Other times you have people that are very eloquent and very charismatic, but at the end of their speech you think, I haven't learned a thing from them. Well, he had one of these amazing gifts of combining both incredible learning with a gift of communication. And so he was an eloquent man, a good communicator of the knowledge that God had given him. A second thing that we learn about him, which is something that we can all emulate, but he was competent in the scriptures. Now, we, we understand there that we're not talking about the New Testament scriptures. They hadn't been written then, but he was competent in the Old Testament scriptures. He had a thorough knowledge of them uh, that some of your translations might even say he was mighty in the scriptures. It's a word um, from, uh, from the root word uh, where we get dynamite from, dunamos. And so it's like this guy was dynamite. Every time you talked about scriptures, it's like he just exploded with his accurate knowledge of the scriptures. He was competent in those scriptures. It was John MacArthur who says, what a tremendous statement. What we need today in this world, not only in the church, are people who are mighty in the scriptures. People who are competent in the word of God. 
And this was Apollos. He was mighty in the word of God. He was competent in scriptures. And then it says that he was also instructed in the way of the Lord. Uh, it's a, a, another word which um, when we listen to the Greek word, we, we understand it a little better. It's, it's the word from which we get catechism from. And, and so it's a form of learning. It's a way of learning. And in fact, catechisms were really birthed about this period. And they began to take place in the mystery religions as well as in the Christian religion. And, and a catechism is a form of learning where it's question and answer. And, and so it's, a, it's an amazing way of, uh, of accomplishing a facility with a great amount of knowledge. Some of you here were born and raised and, and brought up in church on the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you were born and raised on the Heidelberg Catechism. They are great ways to communicate truth. And I, I just want to go through the first two questions of each of those so you get an idea of, of what they teach and the, and, and the way in which they instruct us. The Heidelberg Confession. Uh, the Lord's Day, the first Lord's Day, the first question in the Heidelberg Confession. Anybody know it? What is our only comfort in life and death? What a brilliant question. Do you know the answer? Oh, okay. Well, there's, Mike knows the answer. I'll read the answer to you because he doesn't have a mic. Mike, um, here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all of my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. What is my only comfort in, 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 in life and death? Summary, Jesus Christ. And then it goes on and it says, how many things are necessary for one to know Christ? What is necessary in, for order, for, for, in order for one to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Enjoying this comfort that he may live and die happily. I've seen a lot of people die. Some of them have not died happily. So what is necessary? Three things. First, to know how great my sins and miseries are. Second, how I may be delivered from all my sins and miseries. And third, that I shall express my gratitude for God to such a deliverance. Beloved, if you memorize a catechism like the Heidelberg Catechism, you will be competent and mighty in the Scriptures. A Westminster Confession of Faith, many of us know what the first question of that is. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What rule has God given to direct us how we might glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify him and enjoy him forever. Loved ones, these catechisms were taught to kids who were two, three, four years old. They are not too big for us. And so this is the kind of training that 
Apollos would have received. Uh, um, a question and answer, a repetition in memory. And, and so he had learned the way of the Lord. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, well, he might have been a Psalm 1 man. And you know what Psalm 1 is. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. He would have been a man who understood that, or he would have been a Joshua man from Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you will be careful to do all that is written in it, so that you you uh, do all according that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. He understood the Word of God. He meditated on the Word of God. And as a result, he knew the way of the Lord. So here was a man, competent or mighty in Scripture. He understood the way of the Lord. And I suspect then that were we to hear somebody like Apollos preach, we would be mesmerized. We would sit there in, 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 in rapt attention, almost unable to get our focus away from him because of his eloquent speech, because of his competency in Scripture, because of the way that he could articulate it rationally and logically. He would have been captivating. He would have been charismatic. He would have been learned. I suspect this is maybe one of the reasons why he became so well-loved in Corinth. We won't go to that, but you on your own can go and read the first couple chapters in Corinth. Because after he was in Ephesus, he went to Corinth. And not long, uh, it didn't take long before he had uh, got around him his own following of people. And it's a danger that can happen in any church that has a multiple staff. Uh, any place where there are multiple missionaries that are involved in it. After a period of time, we had people saying, well, I like Paul. Well, I like Peter. Well, I like Apollos. There, He's my man. He's the guy that speaks for me. And then we have the really spiritual ones who come along and they say, well, I follow Christ. You know, well, how do you compete with that one? But the, the, we gather people around us or we, we fall in line behind people that we have an affinity to, for, or we have a liking to. And it's something that ought not to be. I understand this sort of thing. And I understand that People are drawn to a particular speaker or a particular communicator. We have it on radios. We have it on TV. And we have it even in churches. But Paul comes along and he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, says, are you not merely being human? He says, that's not a really good thing to do. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Paul writes, he says, they are all servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but really, what really matters is that it is God who has caused the growth. As a side note, um, from time to time, I'm, I'm asked, and it's a legitimate question, but I'm asked, why, why, why don't we put the names of who's preaching in the worship folder from Sunday to Sunday? Um, uh, I'd really like to know. And um, here's, my, here's my answer in it, sort of a nutshell. The main reason that we don't put the names of who's preaching in the worship folder is because the focus is really the Word of God. The focus is that we gather together as the people of God to fellowship with the people of God, to worship God, and to hear the Word of God proclaimed. And it shouldn't really matter much who's speaking. Because I have been in settings, uh, when I wasn't the pastor, I was just on staff, and people would choose their attendance based on who was speaking. And so I just want to remove that temptation 
from anybody because I want people here when I speak. So we, we people, when's Dan speaking next? I want to be there. When, Mike? So anyhow, that's why we don't do that because I think it's important that we foster a love for the Word of God regardless of who is communicating it to us that particular Sunday. So Apollos was well-equipped and well-versed in the Word of God. The second thing that we learn a little bit about his gifting and his passion here. It says that he was fervent in spirit and that he spoke and talked accurately concerning the things of Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he was speaking boldly in the synagogue. This was a man that was on fire, fervent in spirit. He was passionate. I was um, racking my brain and I finally remembered uh, uh, this little story about David Hume who was an 18th century British philosopher, and uh, he had rejected historic Christianity. And he he once met a friend who was hurrying along a London street, and he asked where he was going. The friend said to him, well, I'm off to hear George Whitfield preach. The response was, well, surely you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? And he says, no, I don't, but he does. He was passionate. He was fervent. He was on fire. He was convicted in what he was speaking. As Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And so Apollos was a man who was fervent in spirit. We also read that he spoke accurately the things concerning Jesus Christ. This is a really important adverb. It, it helps us understand the precision and the exactness with which should go into anything we do and certainly into proclaiming the Word of God. It means that. It means exactness. It means precision. It's a word that first crops up in the Old Testament in relation to judges who are determining cases. And, and I tell you, if a judge is determining my case, I want, it, I want him to look at the facts accurately. I want it to matter to him the details of the case so that he judges correctly. And so it's a term about accuracy. John MacArthur talks a a, a lot about this. And I was reading a little bit about him. And and he says, he says there, you know, there's one thing that really I can't stand. It bugs me more than anything else. And it's sloppy teaching. You know, uh, uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean sloppy exposition on Scripture. When you just meander your way through and you don't really prepare so that you can't really teach accurately. Apollos was a man who taught accurately. MacArthur goes on and he says, that's why I believe that there is nothing more important than a teacher of the Word of God having an education and the tools to carefully deal with Scripture. I mean, if you got sick and you needed major surgery and you go to the doctor, you want to know that the guy knows what he's doing with the scalpel. You may get some information from one doctor and you may want to check out a few other sources. And when you get on the table and they shoot you that stuff and knock you out and you're just lying there and people are doing all that stuff to you, you want to know that somebody knows what's really going on. Beloved, beloved, we are really concerned about our physical health. And I know some of you go to those websites that check out doctors and you talk to other people before you have surgery because you want somebody who knows what they're doing. Loved ones, if it matters that much to us physically, how much more should it matter to us spiritually that we have those who teach the Word of God accurately because our spiritual destinies are determined by that. I was thinking of that this past week and uh, remembered uh, 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 about uh, Korean uh, Airlines Flight uh, 007. Some of you who are um, maybe 
This happened in 83, so if you're a little bit older, you probably remembered about this. But it departed from Anchorage, Alaska on October 31st, 1983 for a direct flight to Seoul, Korea. However, unknown to the pilot and the crew, the computer engaging the flight navigation systems contained a one and one half degree routing error. At the point of departure, the mistake was unnoticeable. A hundred miles out, the deviation was still so small to be undetectable. But as that giant 747 continued its way over the Aleutians and out over the Pacific, the error in that routing was picked up by Soviet radar. And it scrambled two MiG jets to intercept this flight over mainland Russia. And they shot it out of the sky and all on board were lost. A small error made at departure resulted in a tragic trajectory and in the destruction, destructive death of all those on board. Loved ones, accuracy matters. And it certainly matters when we're dealing with the Word of God. It says he taught accurately about Jesus Christ. I don't think there's anything that matters more than to teach accurately about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. And if we get it wrong about Christ, we get it wrong about the way to the Father. And we need to know about His life. We need to know about His death. We need to understand what Isaiah 53 was all about and what it's talking about. We need to understand why Jesus needed to die. We need to understand about His substitutionary atonement. We need to understand why He was raised from the dead. We are helped so much by knowing that He is now our mediator who sits at the right hand of the Father ever interceding on our behalf. We need to know that He's coming back. And when He comes back, one of the things that He's going to do is save those of us who have our trust and confidence in Him, but He's going to judge the rest of his, of the world. And it matters how you respond to Christ Jesus. And so we read about Apollos, that he talk, taught accurately about Jesus. But as with all of us in all the fields in which we know, he didn't know everything. And so Luke tells us that he taught accurately about Jesus Christ, although he only knew about the baptism of John. There's lots that has been said and written about this particular situation. And I'm not uh, in, entirely um, sure, uh, but I, I think I have confidence. See, I shouldn't be saying this. Competent in Scripture. Um, but, but he understood what the Old Testament taught about a Messiah. He clearly understood the prophecies in, in, in the Pentateuch and in, in the Psalms and in the prophets. He would have understood a passage like Isaiah 53 and those passages that talk about God going to be sending a, a Messiah, one who would save the people from their sins. He understood that that Messiah would eventually come to judge the world, but he had no knowledge or no understanding of the necessity and the importance of filling in the gaps was the fact that it was Jesus through his suffering his death, and his resurrection that fulfilled all of those prophecies. And so it was he that was taken aside by Aquila and Priscilla. And they taught to him more accurately the way of God. They taught him about the person and work of Jesus Christ and how it was Jesus Christ that now became the one that fulfilled all of those prophecies, all of those predictions about Jesus Christ. I'm sure they taught him, and we'll look at this a little bit later, about the fact that now we are saved through Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not through our law-keeping. And so they taught to him more accurately the way of God and the way of salvation 
and the way of Jesus Christ. I am so thankful for the fact that we have those that are committed to accuracy. I was thinking about this, and I sometimes hesitate to share personal things, but, uh, you know, I, I share them from time to time, and so this is one of those days. Um, I rarely come into the pulpit um, without wanting to run. Probably happens at least once a month, if not more, when I'm driving here, and I it's all I can do to turn my vehicle around and go home and put my Bible on the shelf and say I'm not going there. It's not because I don't love you. It's not because I don't like the fellowship of the people of God, but I live with this, and it might be an unnatural fear, it's certainly not a phobia, but of saying things that are not accurate, or that are not right, or that are not true. One of the scriptures that continues to resonate in my mind almost every week is from Job chapter 42, verse 7, where after Job or God had finished speaking to Job, he turned his attention to Eliphaz, one of the three comforters of, of Job, and he says to Eliphaz, He says to him, my anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken what is right about me as my servant Job has. The New Living Translation puts it, you have not spoken accurately about me, and I do not want to incur the wrath of God. And then you jump to the book of James, James chapter 3 verse 1 and And sometimes people think, oh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to teach. And my, what a privilege it is. And it is. But James says, there are not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I have enough stuff in my own life of which I will talk to God about. And I do talk to God about. Let alone having to talk to God about my speech publicly from this pulpit week after week. And so there's this. this desire within me and also this fear within me to speak accurately or this fear if I don't speak accurately. And then there's 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If Paul can say there's a way to rightly handle the word of truth, then we ought to assume that there is a way to wrongly handle the word of truth. So, beloved, we need to be men and women, boys and girls, who make it our desire in life to become competent in the Scriptures so that we can accurately talk about the things of God. He goes on and he tells us a little bit about the people in his life. He says there, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. I find their great practical advice and advantage from this particular point of scripture timing and context is everything when correction is necessary those of us who are parents or have been parents we understand this with our children it's never helpful to humiliate our children in front of other people it's never helpful to correct our children unnecessarily in public it's always best to wait until an opportune time where we can get them alone in a car or get them alone in our house and uh, often Kath and I would not discipline our children in front of our other children because we didn't want to humiliate them or embarrass them unless the offense had taken place in front of the other children we would take them aside at a better time and we would speak with them my wife who has been such a gift to me has one to my knowledge has never spoken disparagingly about me in public she has never corrected me in public she has never 
corrected me in front of other people. I don't always like the rides home, but in, <laughs> but, but in public, she is gracious and careful. And even in the rides home, she is gracious and gentle with me, but she knows how weak I am. And she knows that I can be broken in a moment. And so she cares for me and loves me enough to wait for the right context and time to talk with me about things that I have done that may have offended her. And so here we have Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos. Some of your translations may say they invited him home. Others of your translations will say they took him aside. I don't think it really matters which, which translation is the, is the more exact one. It simply says to me that they did it in private. They didn't go after him immediately. They might have waited a day or two, and, and then they, they said, Apollos, you know, we're going to have dinner in our house. Why don't you come by our house, and, and we want to have dinner, and we want to talk with you about a few things. And as they gathered together in their home, and it might have happened over a, a couple nights or a few weeks, it says, then they said, you know, Apollos, you were teaching this in, 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 the, in the synagogue the other day. It was great, you know, and, and, and you, you were right. But let us tell you a little bit more now about what Christ has done and about who Christ is and, and how he fulfills those passages of Scripture. And, and I'm sure they would have had a Bible study with him over, over the course of a few days, maybe even a few weeks. And they didn't break him. They didn't humiliate him. They didn't embarrass him in public. They didn't involve a whole bunch of other people in the situation. They went to him. I think what a gift to have those who are concerned about uh, the people of God and concerned about those who speak and teach, but yet do it in a way that is careful, in a way that doesn't break an individual. Aquila and Priscilla are worth your time and study, even this week, to just look at how God used them as a support to the those who did the front lines work of God. What a gift they were. We find out a little bit more then about the peculiar passion that he had this desire for missions. And so off he goes to Corinth. And here we see a few more people involved in his life. He says, and, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. This must have been an exciting chapter in his life. It was a, a chapter where all of a sudden God did something in him and his desire was to become a missionary. His desire was to take the good news of the gospel now to those who I think his whole upbringing had prepared him for to the Greek culture and the Greek people. And now he was one who was more than equipped now to go into that particular part of the world and share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like his heart began to explode for the people who were across the water who were in in Europe. And it says he wished to cross to Achaia. There was something that was beginning to burden in him. And God was beginning to call him out of the Ephesus and over the water to this particular church where he would land in Corinth. And what is so fascinating is that it wasn't just a passion that God was birthing within him, that God was placing it on the leadership of the church. And it says here that the leaders gathered around him and they encouraged him. And they said, yes, we also see that God has got his hand on your life. And we believe that God is working you to send you over there. And not only did they encourage him, but it says they wrote letters on his behalf so that when he came to the church, he would be commended to them by them. What an amazing passion that God had birthed in his heart. And what an impact he had when he arrived in the church. It says there, he greatly helped those who had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jew, Jews in public, showing by scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. 
I think here is where we see the fruit of encouragement and the instruction of Aquila and Priscilla in the life of Apollos. And I would say today that any of us who have ever accomplished anything, the vast majority of, of us have only accomplished it because people have encouraged us. Because people have come alongside of us and supported us. People have wrote letters on our behalf. Loved ones, you don't need to be on a polish. You don't need to be a Paul to do that for people. But you find two, three, four, six people. Find out what's going in on their life and begin to get to know them. Begin to encourage them. Begin to begin to, to, to engage in what you believe God has called them to or what they're able to do and just support them. It's amazing what God can accomplish through kind, gentle, clear words. And so here we have him now and he's, he's finally arrived in the city of Corinth. And he begins talking to them and he, he says clearly there that he was a great help to those who had, um, by, by, who had received grace. Uh, let me get it just accurately here. It says there that he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. Loved ones, I think there is still a battle here. It didn't end in Corinth. It continues today, and I just had a discussion before the service about this before, uh, about this issue before we came here. How is one made right with God? It is not through anything you can do. It is not through anything you will ever do. It is not based on your goodness. You are not kept out by your badness. Your goodness does not outweigh your badness. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot buy your way into heaven. You cannot enter into a relationship with God in any other way than through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 15 was about this battle that was still taking place in the church because remember, we're in a time of transition. But we had all these Jewish people who who some maybe were wrestling with faith and maybe they had made initial steps, but they were convinced that, that yes, you might be saved by Jesus Christ, but it wasn't Jesus Christ alone. It was also through circumcision. And it was also through your obedience to the law. And so if you were circumcised and if you kept the law, then yes, you could be assured of your salvation. But you remember the decision of the council was absolutely not the only way by which a person is saved is through belief in Jesus Christ and the reception of grace from him. And so here we have Apollos now becoming a great defender of the Greek Christians, probably before the Jewish Christians, who still had not yet made that transition. And loved ones, you know, when you come to understand that you are saved not by anything you have ever done or ever will do, and that you are not kept out of heaven by anything you have ever done, but you rest your faith and confidence solely in Jesus Christ, there is a sense of relief that washes over you that is unexplainable. To know that, as Paul says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus is a beautiful thing. If you've not yet come to put your faith and trust solely and completely in Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, I commend you to Him. And I urge you, be reconciled to Christ. He also says there, he talks about the hope that's revealed in Scripture. The hope is simply that there is a Messiah. You know, Keith Green's song, we sing it from time to time, There is a Redeemer. 
the Jews might have put it this way. There is a Messiah prophesied by God. I just made that up. That's pretty good. But they might have put their hope in a Messiah. They might have put their hope in the promised one that was in Scripture, which God had said. But they didn't yet know who that was. And the beautiful thing is that God has provided a way for us whereby which we can find our way back to him. And he tells us about that all through the Old Testament. He tells us about that through the sacrificial system. He tells us about that through the prophet Isaiah, which we read, Isaiah 53, which talks about one who will suffer and die on our behalf, one who will bear our sins, one who will be our substitute. He tells us about one who will be our king, one who will be our prophet. Those woven through the Old Testament scriptures. But who is it? It's not me. And it ain't you. You can't save yourself. It's not Buddha. And it's not Muhammad. And it's not any Hollywood star. It is Jesus Christ. And loved ones, we need to connect those dots with people. We need to help them understand why they need a Savior. Why they need a Messiah. And then we have to say to them, and that is Jesus Christ. And that's how we lead them to Jesus. Who saves them from their sins. What did John the Baptist say when he saw Christ? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Only in Christ Jesus do we find salvation. The hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. So we have to know Christ. And I urge you this morning, if you've come here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, talk to somebody beside you. In front of you, tap him on the shoulder and said, I came here and this stuff is blowing me away. I've never heard this. Can you tell me about Christ? And let the person explain Christ. If you're shy, talk to Barry or talk to myself, talk to Mike. We'd be happy to share Christ with you. Finally, I just want to leave you with this. You can be used of God. You can be used of God. We're not all Apollos's. We're not all Aquila and Priscilla's. We're not all um, uh, disciples and leaders in churches. But every single one of us who submits themselves to God can be used of God in mighty ways. So I encourage you, as you wait for God, as you look for the way that God is going to use you, This is the single most important thing after knowing Christ that you can do to prepare to be used by God. Become competent in the Word of God. Read it. Study it. Know it. Understand it. And then see the ways in which God will use you for His glory and for His purposes here across the street and around the world.